I am a bit of a people pleaser. I don't like conflict. I don't go looking for conflict. Uh, I struggle with uh, criticism. I don't like being criticized. Because the bottom line is that I just, I want people to like me. <laughs> I think a lot of us are this way. And, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world. It's it's maybe a noble thing in some ways because being a people pleaser means I want to keep the peace. I want to make compromises uh, for the sake of unity. And, and I want to do what's what's good for other people, right? That's part of what it means to be a people pleaser. But there's a flip side that's not good. Um, if you're a people pleaser, perhaps uh, perhaps we just tell people what we think they want to hear rather than speaking what's true and what's necessary. Uh, maybe we affirm things that we don't really believe just because we don't want to ruffle feathers. We don't want to cause a fuss. Uh, sometimes being a people pleaser means making the wrong kind of compromises. Uh, and so it's a, you know, it may have some good to it, but ultimately we, we shouldn't want to live that way. We can't be a people pleaser all the time, nor should we be. And you know, it's, it's fascinating to me. <clears throat> when I look at the life of Jesus Christ, here is a man who was full of kindness and mercy and goodness. He was absolutely winsome and wise and generous. He, Jesus was altogether likable, and yet he was not a people pleaser. Jesus, for all his likable and lovable qualities, Jesus always spoke the truth, even when it was hard to hear. Jesus called out hypocrisy, even though it meant that his popularity would suffer for it. Now, the truth is, if, if Jesus were a people pleaser he wouldn't have been nailed to a cross. Uh, so when we look to Jesus and when we listen to him, it's essential that we recognize this. Uh, Jesus did not come to affirm us and join our side, whatever our side uh, happens to be. No, Jesus came to reveal God to us and to call us into relationship with himself, to bring us to God by his grace. And that means, y'all, that means Jesus is going to constantly say things that we don't want to hear, that are hard to hear. Jesus is always saying things in the gospel that are difficult to hear. And yet at the same time, at the very same time, Jesus is consistently offering us a grace, a mercy that we don't deserve. So often he speaks truth we don't want to hear, but he's also offering us grace that we know we don't deserve. And today's, today's parable from Luke chapter 13, it's really a perfect example of this. Truth that we don't like to hear uh, and mercy that we certainly cannot earn. Uh, Y'all, the theme for today, we'll see it uh, throughout this scripture. The theme is, repentance. Repentance. There are other significant issues that come up in this scripture as well, but we'll continue to come back to that R word, repent. And so it's best if we just jump in. Look with me at Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, the beginning of the chapter. Luke says, on the same occasion, there were some present 
who reported to Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Here, for historical context, we have a reference to two great tragedies. First, there was a murder, an ambush, orchestrated by Pilate. Now, we know Pontius Pilate from the crucifixion of Christ. It's the same man. But apparently what had happened, a group of Jews from Galilee had come to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices in the temple. And for reasons we cannot discern, we're not exactly sure why, Pilate uh, ordered them to be killed and the Roman soldiers put them to death right there, right in the midst of offering their sacrifices to God. This was, without question, an evil, cruel, even blasphemous act on Pilate's part. It's a terrible tragedy. Then Jesus speaks of a second tragedy, a great disaster. It's really more of an accident in this case, where apparently a tower crumbled and fell on 18 people, killing them. Two different kinds of tragedies, but both awful things in their own right. But then Jesus offers commentary on these two events, and frankly, the commentary may come across as strange. Um, he actually turns both of these incidents around back onto his hearers, back onto the crowd. Do you think these people who died were worse sinners than the rest? Now, right here, Jesus is actually saying something very important, a, a tremendous challenge to an assumption that basically everyone would have shared. Everybody Jesus was talking to basically shared this belief that if something bad happens to you, it's because you deserve it. It's terrible what happened to those people in the temple. It's terrible when that tower fell, the people who died. But clearly, God must have been judging these people for their sin. Those kind of things don't happen to good people. And see, the natural assumption becomes if I am relatively happy and healthy. If things are going relatively well for me in my life, then it's because I must be good and God favors me. It's basically the belief in karma. It's, it's, the, ba it's the most basic religious impulse that uh, a great many people in the world still share today. We still believe this. Uh, even Jesus' own disciples believed this. Uh, there's a, a fascinating story in John chapter 9. You can read that sometime on your own. I'd suggest 
that you do because it challenges this same assumption. They encounter a man who is blind, and Jesus' disciples ask the most natural question in the world to their minds. They say to Jesus, Who is it that sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In other words, someone must have done something wrong for this bad thing to have happened. A lot of the world still operates this way. If you're suffering, it's because you're being punished. It's because you must deserve it. But Jesus will have none of it. Jesus pushes back hard on this false belief. He says, do you suppose that these who died were worse sinners than everyone else? I tell you no. He says it twice. I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, if those words hit you and hit me like a ton of bricks, it's because they're supposed to. I mean, this is hard to hear. And it may challenge some of our own assumptions. Wait, if Jesus loves me, shouldn't he just affirm me? <laughs> I mean, it shouldn't, it, it shouldn't really matter how I live or what I do if, if Jesus really loves me. But no, that's not how the scripture reveals God to us. It's because Jesus loves us that he's willing to cross us and tell us the truth, the painful truth, for our ultimate good. Can I say that again? Anytime you see a hard saying in the Bible, it's because Jesus loves you that he is willing to cross your will, cross your beliefs, and tell you the truth for your own good. And here's what Jesus is saying to the crowd in Luke 13, and of course he's saying it to us too. All of you are sinners. And you all stand rightly under the judgment of a holy God. The fact that you're alive and well right now is not evidence of your goodness. If anything good is in your life right now, that is evidence of God's goodness. It is God who gives us life. It is God who sustains that life. And unless we repent... Jesus says there is coming a day of perishing, a day of judgment. Now, remember what I said at the outset? I'm kind of a people pleaser. And so my first instinct is to want to soften this. I want to soften what Jesus is saying. Surely it means something uh, less abrasive than what it appears to say. But I don't think so. I don't think there's any way to soften the words of Jesus here. In fact, it would be criminal for us to take what Jesus is saying and twist it to mean something less. It may insult me to hear it, but it's nonetheless true. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And unless a dramatic turn takes place, unless there's an intervention that takes place, we will stand condemned in our sin without excuse and without argument. Now, you and I might not see this at first glance, but the heart of Jesus right here, even as he says such hard words, the heart of Jesus is not cold and indifferent. 
But we hear loud and clear the promise of judgment. But please don't miss the offer of mercy. The promise of judgment is clear, but the offer of mercy is right there alongside it. I want you to look at the parable that Jesus gives us in follow-up to what he just said. He's calling us to repentance, a repentance that leads to life rather than perishing. Now look with me at Luke 13, verse 6. He gives a parable to show forth what he means. He began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And the vineyard keeper answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Now that parable on the surface may seem very strange and cryptic. It actually ends up being quite simple once we understand terms. Who exactly is this man? What what does the fig tree symbolize? Well, here it is. The, The man who plants the fig tree, this represents God. And the fig tree... These are the people of God. This is the the people of, of Israel, God's chosen people. God plants, as it were, the people of Israel in the world. The expectation here is that God's chosen people will grow and flourish and bear good fruit, that they will be a light to a darkened world, that they will represent life to a world that is dying. This is the good fruit of revealing God's glory and his goodness to the watching world. But continually, in the parable, continually, the tree is found fruitless. And y'all, this is the long, sad story of Israel. This is the story of the Old Testament. God chose for himself a people for his glory, and he gave them all manner of special blessing and privileges. Great were the privileges of the people of Israel. But time after time, they rebelled. And so after all this time, the man says, cut the tree down. It's it's just using up the ground, but it's never bearing any fruit. But the vineyard keeper makes a gracious request. Leave it alone for one more year. Let me tend to it. Let me dig around it and fertilize it. And perhaps then it will bear fruit. But if not, then cut it down. And so we see in this parable, there is a clear message of judgment and at the same time, a clear message of mercy and hope. God's people are called to bear good fruit, the good fruits of love and devotion and obedience and good works. And yet God is continually finding them dry and fruitless. There is therefore a right expectation of judgment. God is holy. God does not uh, shrug his shoulders at sinfulness. He says, cut it down. Any tree that will not bear fruit has failed in its purpose. 
a fig tree that bears no figs has failed in what it's in, in its intended created purpose and therefore it should be removed it's not just something that's bad in and of itself but it's hurting the rest of the, the, the plant life around it. It's using up precious nutrients. It's destroying the soil by never fulfilling its purpose. And you all see what's happening in this parable. This is a judgment that is clear and decisive. Cut it down. But it's also an awesome display of grace. I mean, think about how Jesus characterizes this man, not just the fig tree, but this man and this vineyard keeper. For three years, the man comes looking for fruit. Three years. Wouldn't he have discerned after year one that this tree was no good? How long does it take to figure out that a fruit tree is not bearing good fruit? doesn't take three years. And yet year after year, he continues to come and look for fruit. This man is very patient. And then a fourth year is granted, this time with extra special care given to the tree in order to promote its health and to produce good fruit. And y'all, it it seems clear to me as I read this parable that this final year, this final effort reflects the ministry of Jesus to the people of God. A period of extra special grace and mercy for God to love his people enough to create them from the seed of Abraham, going all the way back to Genesis, then to rescue them from Pharaoh, Exodus, to give them the promised land, Deuteronomy and Joshua, then to give them uh, his law and to send them priests and then judges and then kings and then prophets. God has done so much. And now at last, best of all, to send them his own dear son, to be the savior of the world? Y'all, God would have been perfectly just to bring judgment a long time ago. But he is unbelievably patient and merciful. That's so much of what this parable is about. This this is a word that we see often used of God in the Bible. It's the word long-suffering, slow to anger, abounding in love. God is slow in his judgments, not because he's unjust, not because he's not sure what he should do. No, he's slow because he's patient, he's merciful, he's loving. Y'all, this is a parable of judgment, it's very clear, but it's also a parable of mercy. Now, the judgment will come, and we shouldn't misunderstand Jesus' words as if to say God will never bring judgment. No, the judgment will come. There will come a day where the fruitless tree is cut down. But God is not impulsive about it. He's patient, far more patient than we can even imagine. He's long-suffering. And this brings us back around to Jesus' point when he's speaking to these crowds at the beginning of Luke 13. Don't think that just because you are alive and well today that you are somehow exempt from all this. No, God is patiently, mercifully giving you time to repent and to bear good fruit. But at some point, for everyone, the time is up. At some point, time will be up, 
and unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Um, so that the, the, the sharp edge on this cannot be softened, and it should not be softened. And as much as I, I want people to like me, and as much as I want people to like the things I have to say, uh, the words of Jesus here cannot, should not be manipulated. This is simply true. He's appealing to the reality of the judgment of a just and holy God. The reality of what sinners must do in order to receive God's mercy rather than perish. So let's let's take time here as we close. I say close, maybe, maybe eight to ten more minutes. Let's work this out for ourselves. Clearly Jesus is talking to Jews, Israelites. Clearly the fig tree represents Israel. But there's a broader understanding that includes anyone who claims to know to know God that we would be the kind of people who bear good fruit rather than those who are found dry, fruitless, and useless. I'm going to give us several scriptures that I hope will help us make more sense of what we're being told here in this chapter, and especially at the end, what it means for us to repent, because ultimately that's what Jesus is aiming for. So I want us first, though, I want us to see the heart of God in all this. The heart of God. Someone might assume, if you just parachuted into Luke chapter 13 here, and you see these very strong, difficult words of judgment, well, doesn't that make God cruel and unloving? There are a lot of people who make that assumption about God. If there's any talk about judgment, that's cruel. That's unloving. That's not any kind of God I want to worship. But y'all, look at this. Right after the parable we just read, right down the line in Luke chapter 13, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, the people of God. And I want you to listen to the tenderness and the anguish that comes from his heart in the words he speaks. This is Luke 13, verse 34. Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. Does that sound cruel and unloving? Y'all, it's, it's obvious right there. Jesus has no desire to see these people perish. He has no desire to turn his back on them. And this is made even clearer in John 3.16, such a famous, rightly famous verse, where Jesus says, remember, Jesus is the one saying this in John 3, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that whoever believes in him may not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus says, unless you repent, you will perish. Well, why did he come into the world, though? So that you may not perish, but believe in him and therefore have everlasting life. Again, 2 Peter chapter 3, listen to what Peter says. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. What is the heart of God? Patience. Because his desire is not for us to perish, 
but to repent, to have life. And then Romans chapter 2. The Apostle Paul says, Do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience? Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Don't take lightly this patience, this kindness. It's the kindness of God, not the cruelty of God. The kindness of God that leads us to repentance. This is the heart of our Heavenly Father. You know, there's a, there's a quote from Martin Luther 500 years ago. I love this quote. I, re, I refer to it often. Luther said, If the world had treated me as it has treated God, I would have kicked the vile, wretched thing to pieces. And so would I. If, if any one of us were in God's place and the world had rebelled against us the way it has against God, we would not have wa- we've not we would not have lost any sleep over it. We would have taken care of it right then and there. And yet God looks upon a world of sinners with love and kindness and patience, a love so great that he would send his own son to die on our behalf so that Jesus might give us life in his name. Jesus got what we deserved, condemnation, so that we could get what he deserves, righteousness and eternal life. See, no one gets to accuse Jesus of being cruel and unloving, even when he speaks of judgment. Because the whole reason Jesus came to earth was to bear our judgment for us and grant us mercy in its place, give us eternal life. And so this brings us back. If that's the heart of God, and I hope we see that so clearly, it brings us back finally to this word Jesus uses, repentance. This is ultimately what he's aiming at. Unless you repent, you will perish. And so clearly this is a repentance that cannot be put off. It should not be taken for granted. We should treat it with the utmost importance and urgency. And if you'll spare me one more scripture, I want to give you um, an idea of, of how this is meant to be understood. This is from Acts chapter 17. Paul is speaking to the people of Athens, and he concludes his sermon this way. He says, Therefore, having overlooked the time of ignorance... God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God has fixed a day, a day yet future, for his righteous judgment. And he has also provided everything already, everything for our salvation through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so now God calls us to repentance, which leads to life. So here's the thing. When I was a teenager, 
I remember thinking that repentance, that word repent, that basically meant I feel bad about something I've done. And I try my best to stop doing it. Maybe you had similar experience, a similar definition. I feel bad about a sin, and now I do my best to stop. I know it's wrong, so I'm going to grit my teeth, promise to never do it again, and maybe, here was my experience, maybe for a few days, maybe even a week, or maybe even a month, I'd do okay. I'd will my way to success. But inevitably, I'd find myself right back where I started, sometimes even worse. And I have no doubt that you know what I mean. We've all repeated that cycle. Feeling guilty, trying harder, ending up worse, or at best the same. Y'all, that kind of repentance doesn't work because it's an act of the will. It's an act of the human will carried out in the flesh. True repentance is an act of faith. True repentance is an act of faith. In, in, in fact, we could say that faith and repentance are like two sides of the very same coin. Because repentance does involve a recognition of sin, as well as guilt and grief over that sin. We, we recognize the wrong. We feel guilty. We feel bad. We grieve it. But the heart of repentance, and I say that word intentionally, the heart of repentance is in the turning. That's literally what the word repent means, to change the mind, to turn the heart. Away from sin, yes, but more importantly, toward Christ. Repentance is not just what we're turning away from. More important than that is what we're turning to instead. You turn from your sin, yes, but you're turning to Jesus. And if you're not turning to Jesus, if you're turning away from the bad, and that's all, then you're seeking to defeat that sin by your own power, by your own wisdom and in your own resources. You're trusting in your own righteousness, and that will simply never work. It just doesn't work. But here's the beauty of Christian repentance. The solution to your sin is not to stop the sin. Now, I know how strange that sounds, because it seems like I'm denying what is obvious. The solution, the true solution to your sin, is not just to stop the sin. The only true solution to sin is grace, the forgiveness of Christ. That's the only way sin gets truly solved. Because even if you had the ability, the power, the, the will to stop sinning, you can't undo the sin you've already done. Even if you live cleanly from now on, which you can't, by the way, in your own power, but even if you could, you can't erase what you've already done. It's been done. And see, y'all, that this is why repentance is truly an act of faith. Because in turning to Jesus, what do we receive? We receive the cleansing of from all our unrighteousness, 1 John 1. We are cleansed from all unrighteousness, which is the only thing that can actually save us. Your personal goodness, your holiness, your pursuit of right living cannot, will not save you. Only the cleansing work of Jesus, received by faith, will save. 
And in turning to Christ, we also receive not just salvation, not just cleansing and forgiveness, but we also receive a new heart with new desires, new affections. And see, here's the thing, to repent of sin means to actively turn to Jesus, to actively choose Jesus, to trust Jesus above all else, above everything else in life, whether bad or good, to love Jesus's righteousness more than our desire for sin and ultimately our desire for death. And this means that for us, y'all, repentance is not just an act of faith turning to Jesus, but it's also something that must be done constantly, daily. Y'all, repentance is not just something you did once when you needed to get saved. It's an ongoing gift that God has given to us to consistently renounce sin and to turn our trust to Christ, to turn our mind, our heart, our eyes, ultimately our hands and our feet, to turn the whole self to Jesus, to find in Jesus Christ a greater love, a greater affection, a greater desire and ambition, so that my love and desire for sin is rooted out. That's what repentance really looks like. If you're trying to defeat sin, apart from turning to and trusting and walking with Jesus, then you'll certainly feel despairing all the time. We've all been there. You have a desire to be good, but you can't actually pull it off. Because repentance is not an act of your will so much as it is an act of faith. A faith that controls the will, that dictates the will, but it must be faith in Christ. And so as we close, I I, want to make this appeal to us here. I know, certainly, none of us are as fruitful for God as we ought to be. Not a single one. But some of us, you and I may feel a deep conviction over these words today, over the words of Jesus. Um, not that I'm just, I, I struggle from time to time, but, but maybe deeper than that. I am not bearing the fruit, the good fruit, that reflects a genuine love for the Lord. And if you and I are honest enough with our own hearts... Maybe that's what we see. And in that case, I want to I encourage you that you would look at this moment, this moment right now, as a gracious and precious gift from God. This is a gift of God's mercy and patience. He is a merciful Father who digs around the tree and fertilizes the tree, and perhaps that's what God is doing for you Right now, that's what he's doing in your heart, in your life. Right now, if you're feeling the conviction of fruitlessness in your heart, then my suspicion is, and I feel very strongly, that God himself is patiently, lovingly tending to you. In hope for and and, and with the purpose that you would turn to him and become a fruit-bearing disciple of Jesus. And y'all, we should thank him for his patience. He does not owe us that patience and mercy. It's simply who he is, and we should not take it for granted. If I am alive right now, if I am taking breath right now, then it's because God is gracious, God is patient, 
He is calling me to himself. And so I would encourage you and all of us, I encourage all of us the same way the book of Hebrews does in verse uh, in, in Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4. It says, today, today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not take lightly the riches of God's kindness and patience. But may you and I turn to Jesus Christ to receive his grace and to repent, to turn to him, full face, full heart, and walk with him, that we might bear good fruit for his glory. Y'all, every single one of us, we have this precious opportunity right where we sit. All of life is repentance, turning to Jesus and walking with him. The opportunity is ours. Let's take it. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning, um, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, that even though it's, it's such a difficult word, a, a clear and decisive word of judgment, that, Lord, we would not run away from your truth. Or even worse, that we wouldn't dismiss this somehow as being ridiculous cruel and unloving, but Lord, that we would look into our own hearts and our own sinfulness, and that even more we would look to you, Lord, to your truth, and we would recognize, Father, what is real, that we are sinners in need of forgiveness, in need of grace and that you are a patient father, constantly tending to what is fruitless. Not forever. And sober us with that reality, Lord. Judgment is delayed for us, perhaps, right now. <clears throat> um, but Lord, your mercy is clear that your heart is not for us to perish, not that the tree would be cut down, but that we would turn to you, turn to your son, Jesus Christ, and thereby uh, bear much fruit for your glory. Father, I pray for myself, I pray for all of us listening right now, that this is exactly what we would want, more than we would want anything else, to spend our entire lives, <clears throat> our whole lives, repenting, constantly turning to Jesus Christ, away from sin, away from the trappings of an only temporary life. Everything that would, that would grab for our devotion and affection, that we're constantly turning in trust, in faith, in love to you, Jesus, and bearing good fruit for you, for your glory, and for the sake of the world. And so, Father, we pray, I, I ask this for, for myself and for all of us, I ask that, Lord, when you inspect the tree, um, we know you're not finding in us as much fruit as we would like. We're not as good as we wish we were, as we ought to be. But, Lord, I do pray that you would find good fruit nonetheless, an increasing fruit 
that we might be useful, that we might be vibrant, and that we might be loving and honoring and glorifying you as you deserve. Lord, let it be that we receive Jesus Christ by faith and walk by faith so that each and every day, Lord, the good fruit of the life of Jesus Christ in us would be evident. Father, I pray that you would see it, but I also pray, Lord, that the world would see it, that the rest of the world would know you and see you because they see me. Father, bring us to repentance, a repentance that constantly is leading us to life. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.